Our next speaker is Jenny Reeder. Jenny Reeder is a 19th century women's history specialist at the LDS Church History Department. Hang on a second. Okay, just so people know the book auction will not be starting till noon. So let me start again. Next speaker is Jenny Reeder. Jenny Reeder is a 19th century women's history specialist at the LDS Church History Department. She's the co-author of At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women, and a number of other things. And so with that short introduction, we're going to turn the time over to Jenny Reeder. How's that sound? Okay, good. Um, I'm very excited to be here, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about Sarah Sturdivant um, Levitt. She was born in New Hampshire as a Presbyterian. She often read the Bible and subsequently began seeking a church similar to that that she found in the New Testament. And in the summer of 1837, a traveler loaned the Levitts a copy of the Book of Mormon and of Parley P. Pratt's Key of Warning, a Voice of Warning. And she was con- um, converted and almost immediately wanted to share what she had found. She could hardly express the depth of her conviction after her baptism as a Latter-day Saint in the 1830s. I had something of more importance that was shut up like fire in my bones. She shared her message in local taverns and spoke earnestly to anyone who would listen. She went to visit a sick neighbor and where a large group had gathered, and she said, The Lord gave me great liberty of speech. I prayed with the Spirit and with understanding. Also to him be the glory. We know that Sarah spoke, and we know that she wrote about speaking of this fire in her bones, but we don't have the actual words that she spoke. But I, too, stand before you and tell you that I have fire in my bones, that I am anxious and excited to talk about the, the stories of Mormon women and to quote from um, C.S. Lewis in Shadowlands, I read Mormon women's history to know that I am not alone. I want to briefly give you a context in the world that Sarah lived in. Um, From the beginning of colonial America, women um, expounded and exhorted. While they filled the the majority of church membership, and um, church leaders tended to follow the injunction given in the Bible that women should be silent in church. However, we have a lot of women that weren't silent. We have Anne Hutchinson in the 1630s who would gather people and teach them about seeking their own revelation. We have several others, um, but some of these women, because of the traditions of the time, were considered, as, as historian Susan Jester says, to be disorderly because they were speaking out of order. Or as Kathleen Brown says when she discusses the women of the South, that they were either good wives or nasty wenches. Catherine Breckis teaches us, though, that that there were several evangelical women, and when I say evangelical in this sense, I mean evangelical in the sense of wanting to share the gospel, having this fire in their bones. There There were hundreds of them that would preach in the 18th and 19th centuries. So Sarah wasn't alone. Um, She said that several generations of women struggled to invent an enduring 
tradition of female religious leadership. And when she wrote her book, Strangers and Pilgrims, in 1998, there had been no social or cultural history of female preaching in early America. Part of the problem is we have their records, but they're hidden. They're so deep, kind of like um, Sarah's. This is, I found, deep in the archive of the church history library. She said, oftentimes we don't look at these women because they're considered to be too conservative by women's rights advocates of today. Or they they are considered to be too radical by today's evangelicals. So we kind of have this in-between space, um, but there is this great need to recover the stories of these women, to find the fire in our bones, and to read them and to understand them in order to know that we are not alone. Um, Catherine says that integrating women into history involves more than merely pasting their stories into a previous grand narrative of political events. But we need to ask new questions and to create new paradigms, to rethink our assumptions about the effects of cultural, political, and religious change. And so today, I invite you to do that. I, um, I have these three sort of guiding, guiding points or guiding principles as I work to uh, do women's history for the church. The first one is that women have been and continue to be an important part of the, re- of the restoration. That women spoke and they testified and they exhorted, but often their records are hidden and they're difficult to find. Um, Also, these women involve women that we may recognize their names and women that we don't know their names. So we have both known and unknown women. My second guiding principle is that women's stories and experiences provide both scholarly information and devotional inspiration. Um, We look at them from an institutional vantage point. Why is it important to hear female leaders in the institution speak. Uh, Why is that, what does that give us? Why is it important to understand the history of our women's organizations? Um, And as we do so, we learn how these women negotiated their place. They negotiated authority, they negotiated um, leadership, and they negotiated their understanding of priesthood and their place in the priesthood. Um, So we have this institutional history, but then we also have this lived history, or lived religion. And this is where we see religion holistically, to understand the beliefs, the practices, the everyday experiences. So a lot of times this will involve the sociology, and the religious studies, and the history in discovering what, what lived religion is. And I think this kind of reminds us of these unknown women. Do we see how these women enacted their religion and what they believed. This is um, a huge part of religious studies thanks to scholars such as Robert Orsi and David Hall. So this leads to my third point, and I've kind of borrowed this idea from uh, Valerie Hudson, who uses the study of women in um, countries of conflict. But she says that, and I'm going to apply this to Mormon history, that the well-being of women is crucial to the success of the LDS Church, including those of different generations or cultures or educational and socioeconomic levels. 
and those who are questioning and those who are leaving. It is vital that we understand our women. So in that, in that sort of background, I want to introduce you to the Church Historians Press. The Church Historians Press was started in 2008 um, with documentary editing projects narrative histories and topical studies. So we publish accurate, um, transparent, and authoritative works of history about the LDS Church. And our scholars, we use scholarly standards um, from credentialed historians and documentary editors. So it's really important to us that we have a strong peer review team that we um, have rigorous fact-checking, and that we rely on primary sources. And our audience consists of scholars and uh, members of the LDS Church. So the, the first and biggest project, of course, most of you know, is the Joseph Smith Papers, which gathers all the um, extant documents um, of Joseph Smith and provides complete and accurate transcripts. And there are two significant women's documents in the Joseph Smith um, Papers project that I want to highlight. The first one you see a picture here is of Lucy Mack's history, and the second one is the Navajo Relief Society minutes. So they both sort of start here, and that's really great, I think, because it shows within an institutional uh, format that these women's stories are so important in formatting who we are. Um, we also have the George Q. Cannon journals, which just came out, which are 52 physical volumes spanning five decades. Incredible journals, not a lot of women's perspectives. But again, we get this idea of the institution and where these women came from. Um, so I'm going to spend most of today talking about two of those publications. One of them is the first 50 years, key documents in the History of Latter-day Saint Women. This was published in 2016 and contains 78 documents exploring the Relief Society. So we start with the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes and then just sort of go for the next 50 years, talking about how these minutes influenced people, again, in their institutions and in their lived histories. We have meeting minutes. We have sermons by both men and women. We have annual reports from local re relief societies. So we have the big church and then the small church. We have newspaper articles and editorials, public petitions and uh, political petitions and speeches, poetry, letters, journal entries, and reminiscences. And these all play a really important part to show this embodiment of the, of the Nauvoo Relief Society along the Mormon corridor in the Mountain West and in areas as far away as Hawaii and England. So that's 1842 to 1892. Fantastic resource book. It's all online. You can also buy the big, huge tome. I didn't bring it with me because I didn't want to carry it. <laughs> but I love it. Um, next, we have the, the book At the Pulpit, 185 Discourses by Latter-day, Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. This was printed in 2017, just last year, and this book contains 54 sermons um, theologizing on tenets of faith. Um, it's sort of what we would consider a female journal of discourses, or at least it's, it's a start to a female journal of discourses. Um, we drew on women with inspirational and doctrinal understanding, and it also it 
demonstrates a history of women speaking, um, and you can see that change over the time, over time, from the 19th century to the 20, 21st century. Um, two future projects that we have coming up that have already been announced are we will be publishing the Emmeline B. Wells Diaries, which is huge and so exciting, um, and also an institutional narrative history of the Young Women's Organization. So you can see how all of these things help us to understand, again, not only the institutional history, but the lived religion side of it. So I want to start by talking about two women um, who are very significant in creating um, this foundation of Mormon women's history. And interestingly enough, they're related. We have Emma Smith and her mother-in-law, Lucy Mack Smith. So we're going to start with Emma. Emma was born in Harmony, um, Pennsylvania, the seventh of nine children. Um, she was born into an affluent family and she attended a, a local female seminary where she developed excellent penmanship. Um, but she was also a Methodist, and she was converted as a child. Um, her correspondence with Joseph Smith is found also on the Joseph Smith Papers um, Project website. After her baptism in, in um, July, or in early... July of eight, or 1830, Joseph received a revelation for her, which is the only known canonized revelation specifically given to a woman, addressed to a woman, known, as, known today as Doctrine and Covenants, section 25. Um, and this talked about her position and responsibilities in the church, and um, she was called an elect lady, and she was to support her husband and collect hymns for a new hymn book. But she was also told to expound scripture and to exhort the church according as it shall be given thee by my spirit. So I looked up in the 1828 dictionary what expound and exhort meant at that time. And I think this is really interesting and helpful. Expound means to explain or to lay open the meaning or to, or to interpret. And exhort means to encourage, to embolden, to cheer, to advise, to excite, or give spirit strength or courage. This message was not just for Emma. The last verse of section 25, section 25 says, this is my voice unto all. And so this is why we see people like Sarah Sturdivant-Levitt or Lucy Mack Smith, who, um, Sarah who had fire in her bones, and Lucy who witnessed at every time possible um, this charge to exhort scripture and to expound the truth. Now let's go back to a little bit of, of Emma's background. She was raised Methodist, um, which was a church started by John Wesley as a more progressive um, religious reform movement. Um, however, early Methodists, early Methodism saw a lot of women preaching, but then they began to recognized the importance of a trained clergy. And so while women could express their testimonies or exhort, um, they didn't really, they wanted a clergy who was licensed, who could, ex who could um, expound. And Emma probably felt a little uncomfortable with this charge to expound scripture, to interpret. So she, it, it wasn't until 12 years later when the Nauvoo Relief Society was organized in March of 1842, where she really took this charge seriously to expound scripture and exhort the church. At the first meeting of the Nauvoo Relief Society, Joseph Smith actually read section 
25. And you can find section 25 in a great um, interpretation and annotation to it in the first 50 years of Relief Society. Um, But he taught the women in Nauvoo that Emma was an elect lady, that she was a mother in Israel, and that she needed to demonstrate this pattern of virtue to preside and dignify her office. She only met with the Relief Society 12 times in 1842 and four times in 1844, but her leadership was crucial um, to help others recognize this institutional um, authority and history. She, um, there are a couple of things, and we, we took a collection of her words through different Nava Relief Society minutes in what we called a discourse, one discourse, in, um, at the pulpit. And here's some of the things that she said. She said, we're going to do something extraordinary. So I think that's um, exhorting, it's encouraging and cheering people. We expect exor- extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. She also said that we seek to relieve um, the distress, that each member should be ambitious to do good. We should assist each other. We should walk straight and be determined to do good, that God knows how, God knows we have a work to do in this place. We've got to watch and pray and be careful. So at the same time that she's creating this institutional history, she's also creating a a place where women could feel comfortable and live their religion and express their understanding of that lived religion. Awesome. Wrong thing. Okay. So, like I said, women have been and continue to be a key part of the Restoration. Women's stories and experiences are crucial for scholarly information and for devotional inspiration. And the well-being of women is crucial to the success of the LDS Church. Next, I want to talk about Lucy Mack Smith. These paintings are by Kathleen Peterson. Um, uh, Lucy grew up in a deeply religious family with a generally absent father. Her mother and count... um, ensure that the family was centered on scripture. So they believed in prophecies and visions. And her son, William Smith, remembered that his mother, he said, my mother was a very pious woman and much interested in the welfare of her children, both here and hereafter, made use of every means which her parental love could suggest to get us engaged in seeking for our soul salvation, or as the term was, in getting religion. And I love that. Um, Several months after the death of... Her sons, Joseph Hiram and Samuel Smith, she began writing her history. At age 69, she was in poor health, and she felt it a privilege, as well as my duty, to give my last testimony to a world from whence I must soon take my departure. So she was assisted by Martha, Corey, and her husband, Howard, who had acted um, as a scribe and historian for Joseph Smith, and the Twelve Apostles actually encouraged her to write this history. So a couple of problems with this history is that she is impaired by a fading memory. She's older as she writes this history. And she's also fueled by indignation and grief with the deaths of her sons and her husband. And so that figures in to her writing of this history. And she sometimes presents a confused chronology and incomplete information. Um, She often turns the misfortunes of the Smith family into an exemplification of family character. So she's really trying to make this a a good story. 
Um, even with all of that, though, we get great insight into her personality and her attitude, her emotions, and her beliefs, and understanding of Joseph Smith's role as a prophet. Um, Sherilyn Howcroft talks about how she provides details that we don't find in any other primary documents, such as about Joseph Smith's painful leg surgery when he was a kid, and the way that the Smith family received Joseph Smith's account of ancient um, inhabitants in the Book of Mormon. Jan Ship says that her history is a very rare and valuable first-hand account provided by an observer closely connected to the primary participants in the early development of the Mormon movement. Um, so she, her work really influenced the journal history of the church. It tells a sacred story, which is also our idea of lived religion. And her narrative really has informed the larger institutional history of Latter-day Saints. Brigham Young's assessment was a little bit different. He was a little um, bothered by Mother Smith's history. Initially, he promoted it and supported it. But then he um, suppressed it in the printing of 1865. That comes from a longstanding feud between him and Orson Pratt, and also probably between Brigham Young and Emma Smith and Lucy Mack Smith, who did not come west, Um, and with William Smith, who was very problematic. So he concluded that the book was a tissue of lies from the beginning to the end. Um, luckily, we have Willing, uh, Leonard Arrington who says that this is an informational and basically accurate account. But more importantly, I want to talk about how she is a witness, how she too had fire in her bones. This is a picture depicting uh, the first discourse we have in our book about when she was taking the group of saints from New York to Ohio, and they were, stu- they were stopped at Lake Erie, the Buffalo Harbor, because of ice. And she encouraged her people on her, in her company to raise their prayers and have faith in God. And at that very moment, the ice broke, and only their boat was able to get through. That, we take that account from her history, from her reminiscence. But I love this picture because she does look like one of those early evangelical female exhorters. She was calling upon the power of God. She knew the scriptures, and she was teaching that. She, she witnessed often... In the, in the Relief Society, our institutional history, she wept often and told the women that she was um, advanced in years and couldn't stay long. In March, March 31st of 1842, she wanted to leave a testimony of the Book of Mormon that is the Book of God, that Joseph is a man of God, a prophet of the Lord set apart to lead the people. Um, in April of 1842, she spoke very pathetically of her lonely um, situation. So we see both sides of this. We see this institutional testament and testimony, but we also see this person who's living a real life and having a hard time of it. Um, she was the first woman to speak at General Conference, um, which she did on October 8, 1845, at the age of 73. And um, that talk is also included in At the Pulpit. And the saints really worked hard to take care of her. And so now that we've established sort of this history of Emma Smith and Lucy Mack Smith in in writing their stories and giving an account of what they believed in, I want to talk about this idea of the well-being of women is crucial to the success of of the LDS Church in four different ways. First, the importance of seeking holiness. Next, ministering with authority. Um, third, unity in diversity, and fourth, in building the kingdom. And I'm going to talk about several stories from these two books on the Church Historians Press 
um, org that illustrate these things. So first of all, um, seeking holiness. Here we have a picture of three of my favorite ladies. It's not true. I have so many favorite ladies, but I really like these ones. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about Elizabeth Ann Whitney. This is actually the only picture I've ever been able to find of her. Uh, but here she is with her compadres, or sisters, um, Emmeline Wells and Eliza R. Snow. El um, Elizabeth Ann Whitney um, had natural musical talent and a very religious inclination. And so she was very excited to hear about the restoration of the church. And she and her husband joined in Kirtland, Ohio. She attended a, a patriarchal blessing meeting. So this happened when Joseph Smith Sr. Was the, was the presiding patriarch of the church. And these meetings were often huge manifestations of the spirit. And spiritual gifts abounded. And she exemplifies, in my mind, this idea of women receiving spiritual gifts. So she was blessed with the gift of singing in tongues. And she was told that if she maintained that gift, that she would have it throughout her life. Joseph Smith wrote about how he, she often was able to comfort it. And so on September 14th, 1835, when she received her, cares, or her spirit, or patriarchal blessing, she immediately stood up and sang a song in tongues. And Parley P. Pratt wrote down the word, interpreted it and wrote down the words of that. And that's our second talk in our book, um, At the Pulpit. It was a, a, a charismatic discourse, if you will. Um, and it's called Adam on Diamond. It's a beautiful example of a gift that we don't see often in these days, or a gift that we maybe see in different ways than we did at the beginning of the church. So these ideas of spiritual gifts are also inherent in the Nauvoo Relief Society, where these women were taught by Joseph Smith to seek holiness. One of my very favorite meetings, um, again, if you have to have a favorite, this definitely is my favorite, April 19, 1842. And we have excerpts of that meeting, again, in At the Pulpit, but also it's in the um, first 50 years of Relief Society and on the Joseph Smith Papers website. Um, this was a meeting to welcome Prosendia Buell, who was the sister of Zina Young, who lived outside of Nauvoo, um, who wanted to become a member of the Nauvoo Relief Society. Um, and so these women gathered and bore testimony and literally blessed each other, providing um, relief through the spirit. Sarah Cleveland spoke of the happiness that she felt in the present association of females and made very appropriate remarks respecting the duties and prospects of the society, that it was organized after the order of heaven. Persindia Buell uh, rejoiced in the opportunity that she considered a great privilege. She felt the spirit of the Lord with the society and rejoiced to become a member. And then we have Eliza R. Snow, who promised Persindia that inasmuch as she had become a member of the society, as the spirit of a person pervades every member of the body, so shall the spirit of the Lord, which pervades this society, be with her. She should fill it and rejoice. She shall be blessed wherever she is, and the Lord shall open the way, and she shall be instrumental in doing much good. Through her own exertions and to the fund of the society, fund of the society she shall warm up the hearts of those who are cold and dormant, and shall be instrumental in doing much good. Wow, if we had Relief Society meetings like that today, if we could recognize our inherent value to do so much good, what a power we could be. Do you see how we need these words to help us 
create the or embody the success of of women in the church. Eliza Arsenault was the secretary of that meeting, and at the end she sort of summarized it and said that the meeting was very interesting. Nearly all present spoke, and the spirit of the Lord, like a purifying stream, refreshed every heart. I love that. So Joseph Smith um, intended for the Relief Society to be a, a holy place, a place where the women's hearts could be enlarged and that um, expanded, that the women would have the desire to repent, and their kindness and charity and love would, in, would increase others' desires to repent. Um, another story that I love is of Jane Nyman. I love that picture. Look at her. I don't think she has teeth, but I don't know. She actually was a very poor woman in Nauvoo, and she was not, she applied for membership. That was a thing back in the day, and she was not given membership to the Nauvoo Relief Society. Her daughters had gotten caught up in a, in a scandal with John Bennett and his cronies, and um, they believed that she, ta- she had a house of ill repute. And so she had a reputation, and there was a lot of gossip about her. Um, but she didn't become bitter. Um, she stayed with the church. She uh, followed her daughter. With her daughter came across the plains, and she even helped a cholera epidemic, and um, believing that if she gave her soul, that she would be saved. She became the first Relief Society president in Beaver, Utah, and I love that. She goes from being cast out in Nauvoo to serving a really important position in Beaver, Utah. And she taught her Relief Society about the importance of forbearing and forgiving, of refraining from scrutinizing the conduct of our neighbors, remembering always that we are human and therefore must err. Charity covers a multitude of sins, puts to death, or covers tattle and slander. Bury all malice and envy which at any time is intruded upon our peace and harmony, and in their stead establish truth and integrity, twin sisters of charity. I love that her lived experience, her lived religion comes out in this very short talk, and yet we see this power of seeking holiness. Next, I want to talk about ministering with authority. Um, This is part of this institutional and lived religion. Emma Smith's authority came from Section 25, when the Lord called her an elect lady. And Joseph Smith said to that First Relief Society, I now turn the key to you. Um, Brigham Young... and. Uh, let's see, sorry, Eliza R. Snow recorded all of those words, carried the minute book with her to Utah, and that minute book gave her authority to minister. Brigham Young commissioned Eliza um, to assist the bishops in organizing branches of the Relief Society throughout Utah. And then he gave her another mission. He said, I want you to instruct the sisters. And she said, although my heart went pit-a-pat at the time being, I did not and could not then form an adequate estimate of the magnitude of the work before me. To carry into effect the president's requisition, I saw at once, involved public meetings and public speaking. And that scared her to death, which we don't often think about her. But she was a real person. Um, Also travel abroad, as the branches of the Society of the Sisterhood extended at the time through several counties in Utah, and ultimately all the valleys of the mountains. Um, And so she taught with that authority. She was given that commission, first of all from Joseph Smith, but then from Brigham Young. Um, Next we have Sarah Kimball, and she was 
involved with the Nauvoo Relief Society from the very beginning. It was her idea with her seamstress, Margaret Cook, to create this organization. And um, she creates this institutional memory of Joseph Smith. Years later, she talks about how Joseph said that he had something better for the Relief Society. And also that the church was never fully organized until after the Relief Society was organized. And so she saw that institutional um, part of it. Um, he also told, Joseph Smith told the Relief Society that they were organized after the pattern of priesthood, the priesthood. So years later in Salt Lake City, when Sarah was the president of the 15th Ward Relief Society, she and Eliza in 1868 came up with this list of duties of the Relief Society, including deaconesses and teachers and presidentesses. She was using that pattern that Joseph had taught them, and I love that, that she did that. She later um, spoke at the, well, she prepared a speech for the National Council of Women in 1895 in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, her age prevented her from going. But at that, at that, her speech expressed the importance of what she called the sixth sense, or the spirit. And so she talked about the importance of listening to the whisperings of the spirit, that the spirit educates and exalts and enlightens and is a legitimate exercise of the spiritual power. And that talk is also found in At the Pulpit. Okay. Um, also, we have in Ministering with Authority the example of Phoebe Angel. Um, Phoebe Angel was the mother of Truman Angel. She was also a midwife and came from a broken home and an abusive husband. But when they arrived in Salt Lake City, she employed her skills as a midwife to become the first president of the Female Council of Health. And this is the only extant minutes of that meeting on August 14, 1852, where she encourages these women to rely not only on their faith, but also on their study or their book learning. Next, I want to talk about this unity in diversity. So one of my favorite examples is Jane Wilkie Hooper Blood. Or if you're from Utah, it might be Hooper. I don't know. Um, she was just one of these unknown women. She, along with Phoebe Angel and some of these other women, but she was in the, she lived in Caseville. She was the Relief Society secretary and counselor and treasurer and the primary president. I don't think all at once, but you know how these women did those things. Um, and so she writes in her diary very valuable information about the function of the church. And she's also very involved in silk production. Um, she taught, she writes in her journal, and I think this is indicative of all of us, in May of 1883, I wish I could remember all they said, for it was good after a meeting. But then I want to highlight this line that she gives in June of 1883. I wish my council, her primary council, would attend more regular, for it is quite a task to attend alone. But I feel to try and do the best I can. I read these women's stories to know that I am not alone. Uh, next, we have Zina Young and Rebecca Standring. Um, Zina was known for having a mother heart. Um, she had two sons with her first husband, a daughter with Brigham Young, and then she was asked to raise four children of a sister wife who passed away. And she attended the, the Lehigh Relief Society annual conference in October of 1869. And it seemed like it was all on motherhood. 
So there was Brigham Young speaking, George A. Smith was speaking, Eliza R. Snow, all about the duties and responsibilities of mothers. Um, and she noticed that the Lehigh Relief Society presidency um, had a ton of kids. The president had eight, and a counselor had 15, another had 10, another had eight. I mean, they're good Mormon families. But she also noticed the secretary, Rebecca Standring, who was there, who had been unable to have children. And I love that Zina recognized that diversity. And she said this, I would exhort you to be the faithful in the discharge of every duty. And to mothers, I would say, fulfill your duties to your children, for they are blessings from God entrusted to your care. And to you, my sisters who may not have children, be comforted. We serve a just God, and if you are faithful to his cause, it will be no loss to you. I read these words to know that I am not alone. Um, we don't have a lot of diversity in at the pulpit. We have people from England and Scotland and, and Canada, from um, Hawaii. Um, we have Eleanor Georgina Jones, who passed as white, but came from a multiracial family. We have Lucretia de Suarez, who, um, de Juarez, who spoke in Mexico. And then I want to talk briefly about one woman standing here next to Kate Holbrook on the left, Huda Busha from Germany. Um, she moved from Germany to Utah. She was called as a Relief Society teacher. And she was really... Um, overwhelmed with the perfection of the women in her Utah Relief Society with their perfect hairdos and their immaculate clothing and they would get up early and study and they would serve in the PTA and they would grow gardens and can and um, be in the PTA and everything else. And she said she just could and they bargain shopped, you know, the Utah uh, Mormon woman myth. But she, and she really struggled fitting into that. Um, her diversity stuck out. She said, I finally learned that I should be myself. That is often not easy, however, because our desires to fit in, to compete and impress, or even simply be approved of, lead us to imitate others and devalue our own backgrounds, our own talents, and our own burdens and challenges. I had to learn not to worry about the behavior of others and their code of rules. I had to learn to overcome my anxious feelings that if I didn't conform, I simply did not measure up. I read to know that I am not alone, that my diversity is important in the unity of this Relief Society. And um, we also have the stories of Gladys Satati from Kenya and of, um, of Julia, or um, sorry, Judy Brummer. So next and quickly, I want to talk about building the kingdom. Um, here we have Mary Isabella Horn. Joseph Smith taught the Relief Society the importance of relieving the poor and saving souls, both the spiritual and temporal. And Brigham Young really expanded on this view. Um, but really, it was the women who led the way in this. Um, so he had women organized Relief Society, young women in primary organizations. They, um, the retrenchment is what Brigham Young asked Mary Isabella Horn to lead. She was a member of the Navajo Relief Society. She was the president of the 14th Ward Relief Society. And in 1869, he gave her this mission. And I love the idea of this mission, to cooperate across ward boundaries, but also to teach women not to worry so much about setting a nice table, about cooking food, about dressing appropriately, but really to focus on the spiritual and intellectual advancement of, of women. And so she talked about this, about carrying the principles of retrenchment or pulling back. 
um, the time and the strength and the means redeemed from useless labor to be put to, to work gaining um, intelligence and spirituality. Um, my, my last example of building the kingdom is Judy Brummer. She grew up in South Africa um, on a farm where she played with the children of the servants of, of her family. And it was there she learned the, I can't ever say it right, the Hosa language, the clicky language, right? Um, she And her mother taught her and homeschooled her until she went off to boarding school. And in university, she studied the Hosa language again. And after she became a member of the church and went on a mission, they realized she was the only missionary who could actually interpret and speak to these people. And as a result, she spent all of her time in this one area where they were. She also was able to translate selections from the Book of Mormon. So she used her background and her skills, her diversity, to um, bless the church and to build the kingdom. So let me reiterate my key guiding points in doing Mormon women's history, that women have been and continue to be a key part of the restoration, that women's stories and experiences provide both scholarly information and devotional inspiration through institutional history and through lived religion. But most importantly, that the well-being of women is crucial to the success of the LDS church. And these women's stories of ministering with authority, of seeking holiness, of building the kingdom, and of the unity in their diversity encourage us and help us to remember that we are not alone. My invitation for you is this. Will you include women in your work, in your scholarly work, in your talks, and in your lessons? Will you record women's voices, both your own and other women? And will you encourage other women to do the same? We do have fire in our bones, and we need to record that and remember that and teach that. Thank you. Okay, so this is a good question. For a cash-strapped audience member, which book to buy 50 years or at the pulpit and why? Um, I, I don't get any royalties from this because I'm a, a staff member of the church. But I, um, I would say that there are great books that I refer to my um, hard copies all the time. I've even um, labeled my uh, first 50 years each day of the Nauvoo Relief Society with little tabs, um, and I use them all the time. But the good news is, like Matt explained at the beginning, that At the Pulpit is on your Gospel Library app. It's under church history. Um, it's all there, which I think makes it an institutionally appropriate source for us to use in lessons and such. Um, also, both of these books are online the full edition. There's some bonus discourses in at the pulpit on the churchhistoriansprest.org. 
Um, I think the first 50 years is a great uh, scholarly foundational piece. I think that um, at the pulpit is a little more approachable, but both of these books are books that you don't necessarily have to read from cover to cover, but you can pick up or read through the index or whatever. So that's a good question. Oh, this is an interesting one. Have you or anyone from the church history department been able to find more information to corroborate um, Andrea Radke Moss's claim that Eliza Arsenault was gang raped and could not have children as a result? No. Um, but she's done some interesting work, and I think that is uh, another important aspect to realize that these women are real women and that they suffer from real um, problems. Uh, say more about what you mean by women's sources being hidden or buried. Where are they? That's a good question. Uh, my colleague, Janice Johnson, and I put together a book called Witness of Women, and we did that um, because we felt like it's so hard sometimes. These women's stories are not often found in our curriculum or other materials, and so what we did is we culled archives and found these women's experiences in... Uh, letters and correspondence in uh, journals and reminiscences in newspapers and um, we just took snippets of them and, and put, made them topically so that they were much easier to use. So they are in minute books and those minute books, we also had to cull through those minute books and the women's exponent and other talks, other places for at the pulpit. But it takes a lot of digging. They're not just, you can't you can find a lot of them online for the 20th century and 21st century, but it takes a lot of work to really uncover them. They're in, a, in so many different places, and I feel like with Sarah Studevant-Levitt, we know that she spoke, but we don't know the words that she said. Unfortunately, the technology um, has changed so much over time that that pre um, causes difficulty in finding those words. Um, what advice or counsel would you give for writing our own histories to influence future generations? Um, Claudia Bushwin is the one that, when, if you ever talk to her, she's going to make you walk away promising that you're going to record your history. Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways we can do that, and I think it all depends on your time and your energy and your ability. Um, I, I'm an avid journal keeper. Um, I know a lot of historians don't like to keep journals because they don't want them to, to record all, but I want my life to be, the, the, the record of my life to be straight and accurate for me. So in that way, I'm controlling my history. Um, there's other ways that you can do it. There's, um, I've also found that I like to write personal essays about a topic that sort of happens over time. Um, I love to talk to my grandmother and get little pieces of her life. Uh, you mentioned that Emma Smith held only a limited number of Relief Society meetings. So what happened is Emma was a busy mother, and she had a lot of health problems, and her children had a lot of health problems. And so that was her first priority, as it should be always. Um, also, we know that she had some struggles with plural marriage and with polygamy, and that was the last four meetings of the Navajo Relief Society. She sort of used that to um, speak against uh, plural marriage, and that eventually brought the downfall of the, of the Navajo Relief Society. So when she wasn't at Relief Society, either her counselors sort of stood in... Um, that chain of authority as they'd been taught by the institutional church. Um, I think there's just one meeting where there wasn't any presidency member there, but the assistant secretary was in charge. 
Um, what happened to the April 1842 blessings? That's a very good question. The great thing about um, first 50 years of Relief Society is that they provide these amazing introductory essays that talk about sort of this change over time. And, um, and the, the documents themselves talk about how these, these charismatic spiritual gifts were sort of... Um, over time, how they ended. So that's a study for that whole first 50 years book. It's, it's a really interesting study. There's also some great scholars that have done good work on that, Jonathan Stapley and Christine Wright. Uh, to what extent was the publication of At the Pulpit a reaction to the women who were protesting to have the priesthood? It actually was um, of no extent. And there was no influence of that. We, we decided um, before that we really wanted to create, like I said, this female journal of discourses. And, um, and it's so interesting. When you just look at history, you see these different women and how they interpret the priesthood and how they recognize and understand the priesthood. And um, that's just a part of recognizing who we are and what our authority is. Um, where can we learn more about deaconesses, teachers, and presidentesses? That document is in first 50 years. And um, it never really... Uh, follow, it never really like went into effect, but it was such a cool idea, and this idea came from Joseph Smith in establishing the Relief Society as an order of the priesthood. And lastly, you mentioned Paul's admonition for women to keep silent. How do you interpret that scripture? Have you heard somebody's take on it? Um, so you can hear all about it at four o'clock. Thank you. Thank you much. Here's your brownie and your gift certificate for the